0: Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. Also, by the
1: John H. Watson Society monograph series, available from the John H. Watson Society, publishers of the Watsonian. Online at
0: johnhwatsonsociety.com. And the Baker Street Journal. The leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship since 1946. Subscriptions available at bakerstreetjournal.com.
1: I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, Episode 74, The BSI Weekend, 2015.
2: I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a strongman.
1: In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective.
3: I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler. Holmes the busybody. Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office.
1: <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burt Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock
2: Holmes.
0: You couldn't have come at a better time!
1: And what a great time it is to be interested in Sherlock Holmes. Hello, this is Scott Monty from I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895.
0: And goodbye from Bert Walder. Well, we're a little late, folks, so we've got to go. But the next episode will be even better than this. (laughs) so soon so So soon soon, so soon well Uh, you know if we had more sponsors we can just have the intro and then the outro and be done that's true that's true
1: and we do have three count them three sponsors this time Uh, you heard a new one added in there uh, for just this episode so listen closely a little later on and we'll tell you all about the john h watson society manuscript series.
0: I feel like... No, excuse
1: me, monograph series. Monograph series.
0: I feel like Larry must have felt on the day Curly arrived.
1: (laughs) Oh, you know, you always struck me more as a Curly Joe Dorita kind of guy.
0: Oh, well, I liked Curly Joe Dorita, but uh, were you a big Stooge fan? I was. I was. As a matter of fact, there was
1: uh, a... Uh, an interaction between a couple of Sherlockian uh, friends today on Facebook. It's been interesting watching uh, Sherlockians over the past year get involved in social networks, uh, mostly Facebook, some on LinkedIn, um, but it's it's fun seeing the other sides of their uh, lives, which we don't always get to do, especially when we're at big weekend gatherings like the Baker Street Irregulars weekend, which mm-hmm. we're here to talk about. But... Um, the interaction I saw, and I hope they don't mind me saying this, I believe it was a, a public thread, uh, was between David Morrill, uh, who for many years was Sir Hugo on the Hounds, and he joined us here on Episodes 21 and 22 to talk about uh, Sherlock Holmes in the movies, uh, and uh, Vincent Wright, who is a, a great Sherlockian from Indianapolis, uh, and who was a co-presenter At uh, uh, scintillations, uh, scions. Yeah, uh, yeah, scintillation of scions. uh, Seven, I believe, down in Maryland last year. Well, David started off today by posting on Facebook. Someone asked if I was interested in Powerball. Not at my age, I said. uh, To which uh, Vincent responded, "You could finally pay for the trip to Viagra Falls." At which point, I chimed in, Viagra Falls! <laughs> Slowly, I turned. And then Vincent chimed in, Inch by... Oh, never mind. <laughs> David said, it's nice to have friends who can hit my curveballs out of the park. I
0: like that. Now, wasn't that Abbott and Costello, though? That wasn't
1: the Well, stages. they used it later on, but it was, it was originated. originated. It was a vaudeville routine, but it was originated by the Stooges. Nice. Huh. And it was it was Mo, <laughs> Larry, and Curly mm. uh, in the 1930s that uh, originated that one. Niagara Falls.
0: It's an odd thing, isn't it? I find that um, being uh, having an, uh, recognizing the appeal of the three Stooges is more a guy thing than a gal thing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I guess it uh, it really appeals to the you know four or five year old boy that uh, is far from being a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that,
1: that we keep within us for yes. many, many years. I Look, I took it as a, a great symbol of pride when my sons, who are now 8 and 11, wanted to sit down with me and watch some Three Stooges. Oh. And uh, and and now, of course, you don't have to wait for Saturday afternoon to roll around and watch them uh, on, on television. You can pull them up anytime on YouTube. Mm. So... Uh, I, I introduced them. I think it was over Thanksgiving weekend to the uh, the Niagara Falls routine, and uh, it has become just a great running
0: gag between the three of us. Oh, I'm sure Mindy must thank you for that. Oh, she
1: loves it. <laughs> let me tell you, she encourages us to go out and find things to do outside, and uh, you know, take father son trips long, long distances yes. from the house. Go figure. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, so the three stooges, it's always nice to see them creep into conversation. Mm. Well, what have you been up to since we talked last? I mean, uh, Ken, Ken Ludwig was here with us
0: and now it's just, uh, it's just you and I. Yes. Well, but that's always very welcome. Well, I've been, um, what have I been doing? We had a great me, Ash meeting, uh, The first week of February, I was up in Newport for the meeting of the Victorian Military Society,
4: which isn't a
0: specifically Sherlockian group, but that uh, celebrates the traditions of Her Majesty's uh, officers' mess uh, in Newport, and we have many members of the Naval War College that join that, and that's a lot of fun. And other than that, I've been um, just coping with the winter and working. And you, sure I mean, enough, you've been sure out enough. and about. You've been in San Francisco. You've been all over the place.
1: Yeah, Amsterdam, San Francisco, yeah. lots of travel. But um, unfortunately, because my trip from Amsterdam uh, coincided, I, I, I got back on the same day of the Amateur Mendicant Society uh, meeting here in Detroit. I missed the opportunity because this is, you know, one of the big meetings of the year. Um, Chris Music... BSI, mm-hmm. uh, who shared an early copy of his book uh, with me at the BSI weekend. He has uh, written a new book called From the Vaults, uh, Early History of the Amateur Mendicant Society from about 1946 to 1964. Um, I do have a copy of that, uh, but he was going to be signing and uh, selling copies at the Amateur Mendicant Society meeting, which unfortunately I had to miss. Mm. But um, I believe the, uh, the book is for sale outside of that, and uh, we'll put a link up in the show notes to, uh, to mention that to folks. Hmm.
0: Very good. Well, I think this episode we wanted to focus, as you might guess from the title, on the Baker Street Irregulars Weekend 2015, which was a very special meeting, was it not? Uh, it, was. We marked, it was. We marked two anniversaries. We marked the 125th anniversary of the birth of our founder, Christopher Morley, and the 100th anniversary of the publication of Valley of Fear. It's, it's
1: nice when you actually get a couple of those things to, uh, to coincide. I know uh, last year it was the 80th uh, anniversary of the BSI itself. And um, you know, there's always cause for reflection at that. But I think what, what what happened this time around is, you know, between Morley and the Valley of Fear, uh, it really opened things up that we weren't really beholden to any uh, single theme throughout the entire weekend. And it it felt like that. It was a just a big rollicking fun time uh, at the uh, the weekend.
0: Hmm. Well, it was a great it was a great celebration, and there were. Um... Other milestones, I remember Mike in um, kicking off the dinner uh, presented some artwork to Bill Hyder. He also recognized uh, Peter Calamai, who during the year received the Order of Canada. I remember that.
1: That's true, yeah.
0: Uh, We uh, tipped our hat to Dan Stashour, who won his third. Edgar Award uh, this year from the Mystery Writers of America. And I think, um, you know, Mike was very eloquent at the start of the meeting, pointing out that uh, we all lead interesting lives outside of our Sherlockian pursuits, and getting this community together, um, you know, makes for a very special time. It's a very interesting crowd. It it
1: did. It did. And um, I know one of my favorite portions of the dinner was uh, when a certain gentleman got up there and (laughs) sang a toast to Mrs. Hudson in the the tune of
0: Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men
1: adore you.
0: Ah, Starrett named you. Yeah, Mrs. Hudson, Martha Hudson, Starrett named you. Yeah, oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that was fun. Well, um, (laughs) you know, it's a shame that I can't sing well, but uh, it's also nice that... There's so much tolerance in this community that uh, uh, people are willing even to listen to me sing for a few moments, which is very patient of them all.
1: Well, I know, you know, early on, my music teacher taught me that, look, if you can't sing well, sing loud. Mm. So it works. It works. So um, I think uh, and and you were there. When when did you get into town for, quote unquote, the weekend? Uh, Thursday morning. Thursday morning. Yeah, so got, I got in Wednesday. Yeah, you were I able to go to the in Ash dinner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did some business during the day, but I went to the Ash Wednesday dinner uh, on that Wednesday evening. And I had never been able to attend that portion of the weekend. It's really it, – it's an optional thing. It's not officially part of the weekend, but, you know, Ash, is, as uh, New York is their hometown – Uh, throw the doors open, simply provide a venue for as many people as they can cram into a spot uh, to get together and have dinner. There's Mm -hmm. no official agenda. There's no toasts. It's just a great chance to relax and ease your way into the weekend. And uh, I met, um, boy, I met a number of people there. I saw uh, Maria Fleischhack uh, for the first time from the Baker Street Babes. Mm -hmm. Um, I met, oh, goodness gracious, I'm going to forget her name, Uh, a young lady from the Sherlock Holmes Society of India uh, who traveled all the way over to attend the weekend. Mm. Um, Mm. I sat right next to uh, David Stewart Davies and Catherine White Mm. Uh, and, you know, just generally had a good time. And boy, it was cold. (laughs) How, How cold, how cold was it? It it, it it was so cold, I couldn't feel my Victorian bells. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I, I didn't have one ready for that one this time, Bert. Sorry. Um, but, you know, one, one of the, the things everybody likes to complain about during the BSI weekend, because it's held in early January in New York, is, is the weather. Mm. And while we didn't have precipitation this time around, we had biting, biting cold and while it's it's nice to you know get welcomed indoors by people you haven't seen in quite a few years it's even nicer when you're coming from outside when you're freezing and the the atmosphere of the room as well as the welcome from your friends are both warm mm. and frankly that's what the whole weekend was kind of from feast to feast from from breakfast to lunch to dinner to cocktail reception and everything in between. And I uh, just had an opportunity to just hear some really great stories from some amazing people. Mm.
0: Yes, it's unique also in the amount of eating and drinking that one does. And not too many people know this, but the Baker Street Irregulars weekend is designed uh, intentionally so that from the Wednesday night through Sunday – the average uh, attendee will consume uh, the same amount of calories that Sherlock Holmes did in 1895.
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to say over the course of his 30-year career. <laughs> Nearly. Nearly, yes. Nearly. Well, um, I, I know one of the things that I look forward to, and it, there, there are lots of different traditions that happen Uh Throughout the course of the day on Thursday, mm. uh, there's the Lunch of the Sacred Six. Uh, there is uh, uh, the the annual uh, Lunch of Steel mm. to celebrate Frederick d'Orsteel. In the mm. evening, people kind of go off and do their own things. I know there's some folks that have for years have gone to Ollie's Noodle House. There's others that have gone to uh, Pete Tavern, kind of an O. Henry celebration. Mm. But um, – but you've been hosting this little gathering uh, on behalf of or in memory of Freddie Dorsteel for,
0: is it 12 years now? Yeah, it's hard to believe. Um, and we we changed the venue this time. Oh, we did. Yeah, for it's always been at the Players, but the Players has ceased food service, sadly. So we now have a new locale at Salma Gundy Club, which is... Uh, one of the oldest American art clubs. It's actually older than The Players. The Players wow. um, was founded in 1883, which must mean it was lost in around 1882. Um, but the salmagundi goes back to the 1870s, uh, all the way down there at Fifth Avenue and 12th Street. And the, the wonderful thing about connecting with Salma Gundy is that Steele was a member there. He lived around the corner. And his scrapbooks are there. Oh. In um, a magazine for book lovers called The Colophon in 1939, among other things, he recounted his history. And when he came to New York, he would basically collect from the magazines examples of the great illustrators that he admired. And it grew to a massive collection that is still with us at Salmagundi Club, and it's absolutely amazing. We were lucky enough to go up to the library and see those scrapbooks, uh, and you get to see everything that caught his eye, and it's amazing stuff that's preserved there. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Maxfield Parish. I mean, the people that, that you would recognize, Charles Dana Gibson, the great names, but also uh, people like Frederick Dielman, who is less well-remembered and so on, and it's Immense. There must be two dozen huge um, books there. So that was a real treat. Yeah. So before we, we get into some of the conversations
1: um, from the Lunch of Steel, how did you go about deciding to honor Frederick d'Orsteel? I mean, of, of all people, you know, we've got, uh, we've got lunches dedicated to William Gillette and hmm. Mycroft and all sorts of folks around, you know, as you go through Scion's around the country. What,
0: what led you to pick Frederick d'Or Steele? Well, th- there were sort of two things that were going on. One was I was very interested in bringing back the Three Hours for Lunch Club, which was one of the two societies, as Terry Hunt described in his paper about Christopher Morley at the BSI dinner, that led to the formation of the Baker Street Irregulars, the other being the grilled parts that it's sitting it on. Um among the clubs that chris Morley um founded throughout his lifetime, but the three hours for lunch Club was always something uh special in that it's a bit like you described the ash dinner it's a, a it was a no agenda group with clubable interesting people who were capable of talking um knowledgeably about Sherlock Holmes but also about many other things and um Originally, it started as an opportunity just for me to meet my New England friends—Charlie uh, Adams, may he rest in peace—and mm-hmm. Tom Francis and Richard Olkin and Al Silverstein and Jan Prager and uh, the gang from um, Rhode Island and Connecticut and Boston—and um, I latched on to steel because uh, having joined the players. I was surrounded with um, lots of information about his life and times there. He was a great luminary in the Players. He joined the Players in 1905 and was a member until his death in the 1940s. He was the uh, head of the pool committee at a time when the pool table was really a center of attraction at the club. He was also the editor of the club bulletin for many years. Hmm. And I discovered that he had written several Sherlockian pastiches which he then illustrated over the years and put them in the club bulletin and so oh, wow and so I began reprinting them as part of my souvenir books for these um, lunches uh, the first one being the adventure of the missing hat rack um, and I've just kept finding more and more steel things you know this memoir his memoir that was in his reminiscence it was in the New Yorker his memoir that was in Colophon uh, his fir- his letter describing his first meeting with Sherlock Holmes his pastiches his other interests um, and it just sort of grew from there but you know the, the attractive thing about steel was steel as an artist and um his temperament, which really comes through in his writings. Mm. Um, Illustrators are a solitary lot. You know, we got into this a little bit with Tom Richmond. And um, you often don't know uh, how good your work is, how well your work is received. Um, Steele would occasionally have the experience of dashing off a sketch and sending it to someone, an editor, with a note that says, how's this? And the editor says, that's perfect. Don't do any more work on it. I'm buying it. I'm going to print it. And he would be astonished. And then he would work and he would work and he would work on something and it would come back for corrections. And he would illustrate the work of artists and uh, some he had a great affinity with who were complimentary about how he brought their scenes and characters to life. Others were less so. In fact, one of his great disappointments was when he was in England and met Conan Doyle um, and Conan Doyle uh, kicked off his part of the conversation by telling Steele of another great artist, Cyrus Cuneo, who, in Conan Doyle's opinion, did the best job that's ever been done on any illustration <laughs> for uh, anything that Conan Doyle wrote. And that was those little things, you know, were, were felt very deeply. Yeah, by, by Freddie Steele, and so uh, I, I developed a great sense of his personality, and uh, just sort of led from there. I found him very attractive as a character.
1: Well, it's a it's a nice tradition, and in case uh, folks who uh, you know are joining this podcast early in their Sherlockian uh, interests, uh, Frederick Dore Steele, in our circles, is most widely known for his illustrations for. Uh, particularly uh, the return of Sherlock Holmes and beyond, uh, in the Colliers uh, magazine as Sherlock Holmes came overseas to the United States. Uh, And, of course, he used William Gillette as his uh, model, if you will, for uh, the figure of Holmes. And uh, it's by those drawings that um, we've come to know Steele. And, of course, his, uh, his profile of Sherlock Holmes still graces the uh, Baker Street Journal to this day. Mm. So uh, Fred- Frederick Thorstein, a very very important uh, member of the Sherlockian community, and uh, wonderful that we actually are are and have been able to meet in the, the clubs that uh, he called home for uh, many years. His home away from home, mm. if you will. And and I think part of the interesting things that we learn there are. Uh, some of the backstories behind, hmm. uh, you know, how organizations were founded and how certain uh, events that have become legendary in our uh, in, in our collective memory uh, came to be. And I don't think there's anyone better at telling some of those stories than Peter Blau.
2: John Beneschal and I were once I was, sitting in the lobby of the Algonquin back in the oh. old days and 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 Ev Herzog came up to us this Ev Herzog that one not not the other one not my mom and (coughs) said to (laughs) us you know John I've heard you tell your story about that night at Kavanaugh's restaurant when the adventurers picketed the restaurant and John noted and she turned to me and she said Peter I've heard you tell your story about about that night
0: With Kavanaugh's
2: uh, when the was picked so at the restaurant, and I nodded, and she said, yeah.
0: they're not the same story, <laughs> and we
2: nodded, and she said, neither are they the same as mine,
3: and we nodded, and John said... Ours are better. Why are we not surprised? <laughs> and indeed he was
1: right. Ours are better,
0: Now was it Kavanaugh's? I thought that was at the Regency.
1: Well, it was nineteen sixty-eight.
0: Oh, so that would have been Kavanaugh.
1: So that would guess, have been Kavanaugh's. Yeah. When and that the the event that's being described is the the year that uh, Ash was basically founded by um, a group of women standing outside of the BSI cocktail reception and uh, BSI dinner, uh, picketing
0: yes.
1: the BSI dinner for being exclusive to uh, males. Yeah. The very idea. Indeed. But I think we, we, um, we kind of went off script with Peter a little later on. And um, Al Silverstein is a uh, also regular attendee of the Lunch of Steel. He comes down from Rhode Island, mm. and Peter was telling a story uh, about sitting in the lobby of the was it the Algonquin yes. at the time. Yes, this is back when the Algon- before the Algonquin was taken over by uh, some of the hotel chains, and when you could just sit in the lobby and chairs were scattered all over, and there were tables there with these great brass. Uh, bells on them that you would ring for service Mm. uh, and they would be glad to keep serving you all night long and i don't think even in those days that beverages were inexpensive Mm. uh, at the algonquin uh, as served in the lobby but uh, peter decided to tell one of these after hours uh, stories about his interaction with with al Oh. This goes in the
2: three hours for lunch club file.
1: It isn't a three hour story, is it?
2: No, no, no. <laughs> that's a five hour story, <laughs> not
1: the three hours. <laughs> Al Silverstein
2: has just arrived.
1: Bravo. Well, that's a good, that's a good three hour paper. That's a good story, that's a good story.
2: And many, many years ago, Al and I were seated across the table from each other, at the end of that U-shaped table at Cavanaugh far below the salt. And that was the year that Al had laryngitis. Years old, uh, and and you of the blessing. <laughs> and, the, and the crowd applauded. <laughs> and this and is so long ago.
0: That we were able to communicate with each other. Notes passed across the table. What do you mean you didn't? Dancing men.
3: (laughs) men. Well, the
2: dinner was over, and
1: I hope you still have those for the archives. No, no, no. The waiter. I'm here. here. (laughs) (laughs) Know anything else? No, so, they we're going to do it in the but t- t- but took
2: We returned to, it. to the Algonquin. Some of us, well, actually more than some of us, because it started. There would just be two or three of us would come back to the Algonquin. Act, John Bennett Shaw and John Carty and I and wait for the ladies to come back from the theater or something like that. But. It, as with every Sherlockian event, more and more people came. And that year, there were about a dozen people sitting at a long table in the lobby of the Algonquin.
5: And the waiter came around with a bill for a round of drinks,
2: which I saw. No, and no. Oh, and, oh, no. and no. Al leaned across the table and, and whispered loudly,
3: Ha ha,
2: I told them to bring you the bill. And I leaned across the table and said, I see where this is going. Ha ha, I signed your name. There you go. I thought
0: it was going to have a surprise ending.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that story. Mm. Ha, ha. ha, ha. Very funny. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, that's that's a great example of just some of the, um, the things that happen when you're in the company of these people that there's no way of capturing it otherwise. There's no way to kind of bottle that up and remember. It. There's no way to document it in uh, our, our written history. Mm. This is part of being... Uh, a member of a, of a social organization uh, that takes great pride in storytelling and uh, witty banter and uh, and back and forth.
0: Well, it's true, and it's, it's part of, you know, you're right when you use the word social to describe it, and you frequently said that the Baker Street Irregulars were your, and the Sherlocking community was your first social network. Yeah. But there's been a lot of research there's a fellow who, um, uh, whose name escapes me, but who has um, devoted the last few years to, to understanding the characteristics of what are called blue zones around the world. Italy, Japan, the United States, other places. There are sections of geography where people seem to lead longer, happier, healthier lives. Mm. And in his analysis of why they do... Uh, one of the factors is that they have a set of interests that sustains them as they age and that they have a strong community. And um, getting together at events like this and as our listeners really can do anywhere through a local science society or by starting a local science society, it's uh, a wonderful thing to be able to spend time with people who share the same interests that you do. You know, among my um, other interests uh, has been a lifelong interest in photography. And for a while, I was the member of a a particular camera group. And we were up in Boston for a weekend uh, in the spring several years ago, touring and photographing and went all over the place. And I realized on that one of those afternoons, that uh, it was one of those rare times where nobody was saying to me, hurry up. You know, nobody was saying, hurry up, Dad, uh, hmm. because I was with a bunch of people who all were stopping and snapping and taking pictures. And uh, it's great to, to be with a group of people who share your interests.
1: Well, it is. And I think, um, you know, when you mentioned at the top of the show what you had been up to since we spoke last, you mentioned uh, having gone up to the uh, Victorian military society mm. dinner that's just one of those great examples of an associated interest that um, we can take and you know I'm sure there are sherlockian photographers there are sherlockian train enthusiasts there yeah. are you know go on and on and on um, some of these associated yes. interests you know, that we can bring our uh you know fellow members who maybe were a little myopic in their own interests and introduce them into things that's that's how I became interested in uh, in Winston Churchill mm. um, and and you know, before we recorded the show I mentioned the name Martin Gilbert mm. uh, the great biographer of Winston Churchill he just passed away uh, in the past week or so um, and it was because John Besh uh, who uh, I had known from my Sherlockian circles introduced me to uh, he introduced me to Winston Churchill and, and a lot of the writings about him he introduced me to the um, the English-speaking union, mm-hmm. um, you know, lots of associated interests that uh, you learn from your your, your fellow, uh, I don't want to call them socialites, but, you know, your fellow members at these social organizations.
0: Mm. Well, and it's true. I mean, and you find remarkable connections. I mean, for uh, several years, uh, an acquaintance of mine um, was a fellow who was responsible for Uh, he worked with John Iwata at IBM. His name was Harvey Greisman and did uh, public relations and marketing. And one day I discovered quite by chance that Harvey was passionate about Winston Churchill. In fact, he had some executive position in the Churchill Society. Mm. Uh, Maybe he was president for a year or something like that. But um, it's amazing what you discover um, about people. And the charming thing about about Sherlock and about Holmes is, particularly now these days, I find many more people that when they ask me what I do and I tell them, oh, by the way, I have this interest, uh, many more seem to come back and say, you know, I've always liked those stories too. (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
1: That is true. Well, you know, speaking of associated things, what a great opportunity for us to pause and thank our sponsors for associating themselves with us these are uh... these are folks that actually pay good money well, money at least to uh... to us Have to, you to cashed help.
0: any of those checks monty that's what I well um,
1: i i keep asking them to uh... to make the check out to cash <laughs> but um they, they still come in for i Um These are folks that actually uh, are are supporting our habit uh, and and are supporting our bandwidth and everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So please, if you have an opportunity to uh, frequent these sites, to make yourself uh, available as a customer, as a subscriber, as a purchaser, please, please do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, These folks include
0: the Wessex Press. The Wessex Press, and you can... Hop on over to uh, Wessexpress.whatever and uh, (laughs) close your eye and just click buy. But among the things that you'll see there are is Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the Newspapers, edited and annotated by Matthias Bostrom and Matt Laffey. I think we've mentioned mentioned this before. It's got um, a lovely introduction by Stephen Rothman. It's dedicated to the memory of Richard Lancelin Green. And uh, it says here on the back, a wealth of exciting Sherlockian treasures lay hidden in old, inaccessible newspapers, untouched for over a hundred years. These ephemeral, late 19th century papers covered the writings of Arthur Conan Doyle and the doings of Sherlock Holmes as they first appeared. Well, in this first book, you will get a collection of all of those Pieces that have, for the most part, been unseen for more than a hundred years, and it's a wonderful publication of the Wessex Press and their imprint Gasogene Books.
1: Yeah, and and uh, so popular did that book turn out to be at the BSI weekend that it actually sold out. So uh, that's a that's a good sign, and there's many many more volumes coming in that series. So. Uh-huh.
0: Well, I think they're still, still selling copies, aren't they? they? They sold the copies they brought with them.
1: They did, yeah, they did. but there are, there are still copies available online. But the, everything they brought with them to the BSI weekend, they sold out of. Well, that's a good sign, definitely a good, good sign. Thing. Well, we have, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, a new sponsor this time around, the John H. Watson Society Monograph Series. Uh, this is an annual occurrence and last year's uh, monograph was Coin of the Canonical Realm by none other than Nick Utekin. But this year's monograph will be some observations upon the early writing of John H. Watson, M.D., 1887 to 1894, mm. by none other than James C. O'Leary. Here, hear. hear. Uh, James is a, a regular uh, contributor to the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website and uh, certainly a great supporter of the show here, um, and now a sponsor. So we appreciate that, uh, James. If you're looking to get yourself an early copy of this monograph, and and I can highly, highly recommend it, having seen last year's and having been a uh, subscriber to The Watsonian, uh, you can go over to johnhwatsonsociety.com. dot com. Mm. Uh, Johnny Watson Society is the uh, online society dedicated, of course, to recognizing and celebrating uh, the accomplishments of none other than Sherlock Holmes's biographer, his Boswell. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a biannual subscription—that's two-year subscription—you uh, will get um, the copies of the uh, the Watsonian. You'll get four issues of the Watsonian Journal. Uh, which is a really impressive publication. Uh, it, it's thick, like on the order of uh, the old series of the BSJ thick, um, and it's, it's filled with great scholarship. Uh, it's $50 uh, domestic, $60 overseas. Um, members and non-members can purchase individual issues of the Watsonian if you want to catch up for uh, $12 per copy. And uh, you have the option of choosing either a print edition or a, uh, a PDF for downloading electronically. And, uh, and James O'Leary's monograph itself is also $12. So what a bargain in Sherlockian scholarship available from our friends at the John H. Watson Society at johnhwatsonsociety.com.
0: Mm.
1: Oh, the Baker Street Journal.
0: Oh, are they still publishing?
1: <laughs> they're not only publishing; they're tweeting. You're kidding. Yes. Find them I on have, Twitter I at Baker some. St Journal. Baker St Journal on Twitter. It, it's a. I think Steve Rothman, uh, as the uh, the editor of the, the publication and as the uh, editor of the tweets, uh, does a remarkable job with uh, the journal. It's a it's a fun Twitter account to follow, and of course. It's a must-have for any Sherlockian who calls him or herself a Sherlockian. Uh, annual subscriptions are open for 2015. Get your subscription in now at BakerStreetJournal.com, and of course the uh, the the uh, Christmas annual is included, so you get four issues plus the Christmas annual, um, and it is. I think they actually mentioned the uh, who the uh, Christmas annual is. Uh, about this this year, none other than Nicholas Meyer and the 7% Solution.
0: Mm.
1: We're celebrating 40 years of the 7% Solution. I guess 2015 is the year that falls in between the 40th anniversary of the book, which was published in 1974, and the movie, which uh, hit the theaters in 1976. So what a great way to split the infinitive. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and celebrate the 7% Solution's 40th anniversary uh, as part of the Christmas annual. But get your subscription in now to the Baker Street Journal because that's the only way to get that Christmas annual.
0: Yeah, and um, for those of you who um, I hope are few in number who've never seen or looked at the Baker Street Journal, it really is worth it. One of the customs is uh, of the community here. Is to recognize um, in most years a, an article from the Baker Street Journal is worthy of special merit, and the author of that um, article is uh, given a special prize called the Morley Montgomery Award, uh, named after Christopher Morley and James Montgomery an early irregular, and this year the award, the Morley Montgomery Award, went to our friend. Tim Greer. For, That's right. For his article in the Autumn 2014 Baker Street Journal, Murger in Baker Street. Now, I didn't always thought it was Mergay, Henri Murgay, but he wrote a, it's a magnificent um, paper. You know, Tim points out that uh, in Study in Scarlet, Watson uh, in the fifth chapter is skipping over the pages of Henri Murgers. Uh, Vie de Bohème, which uh, is a collection of stories about artists and writers in 1840 Paris, and among other things, it led to Puccini's uh, opera La Bohème. But it's a magnificent article, um, all about the bohemian nature of Holmes, Watson, and even Irene Adler, and how it fits into that world, and it's just beautifully written. And so, if you appreciate things like that, that's what awaits you in the Baker Street Journal.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good call. And and of course, that was actually part of the BSI weekend as well. You know, yeah. the Baker Street Journal uh, hosts the Morley Montgomery Award reception uh, right before the uh, the uh, distinguished speaker lecture and uh, it's a great opportunity for anyone who writes for the journal to show up and uh, enjoy uh, open bar on behalf of the journal mm. and meet the other writers so you know if you needed uh, more incentive to actually write for this publication
3: mm.
1: uh I don't think we could give you better and you know as i'm looking at the baker street journal uh twitter uh handle right now twitter account um It looks like today, February 12th, 2015, marks the 25th year, 25th anniversary of the death of Julian Wolfe.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
1: 25 years ago tonight.
0: Hmm. May he rest in peace.
1: Uh, Indeed. Indeed. Julian, of course, uh, longtime head of the BSI and editor of the Baker Street Journal. So part of our collective uh interest and in history here at I hear Sherlock everywhere. Mm. Well we had other uh other occurrences during the BSI weekend that are worthy of note, did we not?
0: We did. One of the lovely things um at the dinner was a terrific presentation by David Stewart Davies and um David uh, is just a supremely talented, uh, in, in so many areas, uh, playwright and author and actor. Um, and for those of you who are fans of uh, British comedy and may remember the names Spike Milligan and Harry Secombe and Peter Sellers and may remember The Goon Show, he huh. put on a very goonish um, uh, Baker Street, play, all by his lonesome, doing all the voices. <laughs> and uh, we did not want to play the entire thing for you, but just to give you a taste of it, here is a minute and a half of David Stewart Davies. Now, Mike Whalen gave us permission for this when we interviewed him, as you remember, um, in an earlier episode. Episode uh, 71. Yeah, episode 71. We asked Mike if we could share a little of David Stewart Davies. Here is a minute and a half of David's... Presentation, which is all about, not to give it all away, but it's all about a mysterious group called the Four M's who um, are working to end the life of Sherlock Holmes. And here's a little excerpt from that
3: I think someone is trying to kill you. What makes you say that? Well, the gunshot from across the road this morning that smashed your bust of Lady Gaga. <laughs> that exploding aspidistra that came in the post, the deadly spider that crept out of your tobacco pouch and was consumed in your meerschaum, and that letter that arrived after lunch saying, we are going to kill you, signed the syndicate of four. Just coincidence. Uh Aha. I deduce we have a visitor. Watson, make yourself scarce. I suspect I'm about to encounter a fiend. Oh, I'll crawl into my usual hiding place. Oh I can't. The coal scuttle is full. Just go to the pub. Oh, very well. Once Watson has made his way to the horse and spittoon, Holmes's visitor enters. Ah. Professor Moriarty. Oh, Mr. Holmes. You have far less frontal nose hair than I expected. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Hudson is a dab hand with the clippers. Oh, I've always wanted a dab hand. I have a glove that would fit it perfectly. Uh Uh-huh. Mr. Holmes, it is dangerous.
1: (coughs) Uh, Always entertaining. And if you're interested in viewing that in its entirety, uh, we do have a video version that we will include uh, on the website as part of the show notes. We'll embed the video there for you to to watch. Mm-hmm but david uh David's a great deal of fun every every
0: time and the uh, one of the highlights of course of the weekend is the awarding of investitures or the investing of new members and I know Scott and I were both uh thrilled and delighted when our friend Christina Menenti was uh awarded an invest I'm always I'm always sort of walking around the verb here you know I know some people say invest investitured uh, oh. but she was uh don't,
1: of... don't let susan rice ever catch you using investiture as a verb she'll oh, no. skin you
0: alive well i would no more do that than suggest to nero wolf that imply and infer were synonymous <laughs> uh no i'm pretty um I I tend to use invest all the time uh, when I'm not wearing a waistcoat, of course. But the question uh, remains, um, do you need to wear a
1: vest to be invested?
0: Well, if you weren't wearing a vest, it would be a waistcoat of time.
1: Oh, Oh, don't make me sign your check, Al Silverstein. (laughs) Ha ha
0: ha. (laughs) Ha ha. Ha ha. But, uh. (laughs) Scott, you talked to Christina a few minutes after she uh, received the happy news that she was. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, I was sitting back to back with Christina. Her table was uh, was right behind mine. And I was able to uh, snare the first interview with Christina after she came back from receiving her investiture. And I asked her what it felt like, what was going through her mind now that she was a member of the Baker Street Irregulars.
5: I can't stop shaking mostly. <laughs> I don't
4: even like, I never expected it ever. And then people kept telling me it'll happen, it'll happen. I'm like, okay, whatever. And then it did. And now I'm just kind of like <laughs> I have nothing intelligent to say right at this moment.
1: Well, of course, uh, Christina was uh, given the investiture Grace Dunbar, which is uh, the heroine or actually the victim from uh, the problem of Thor Bridge, a woman who was uh, maligned and accused inappropriately of uh, vile deeds. And uh, couldn't think of a more appropriate investiture for Christina. So I know we're all thrilled uh, to welcome her. And I can't believe I have to say this as part of the next generation of the BSI. There was, there was one time when that was me. <laughs> I think we all were there. Ah, uh, don't live in the past, Monty. <laughs> I live in the future. Yes. Let me tell you, the flying cars are amazing. Oh, uh, get out of the way of my jetpack. <laughs> so uh so that was nice. But uh so congratulations to Christina Menente of the Baker Street Babes, our sister podcast. Mm. And, of course, there was another investiture. And this uh, individual was also actually at my table. Oh. And um, there's, a, there's a great heritage story to this one as well. I'm here at the mysterious bookshop on the evening of January 9th. Well, of course, now it's January 10th, 2015, with the origin of tree worship, none other than Glenn Moranker. And now we have another Moranker who has been added to the rankers of the BSI.
5: Ah. Emily. Ah. Sorry,
1: it's the least I can do. The very least. Emily Moranker who is Hattie St. Simon. Did right. I get that right? You all need right. lady. Lady Hattie St. Simon. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. And you were at my table tonight. And I take that as a great omen. That means it's going to be a great year for 2015 because I had the good fortune to sit next to somebody who was blessed with a new investiture. And when Mike referenced San Francisco, the bells started going off in my mind. Of course, Glenn, you're from San Francisco. (laughs) I am now. (laughs) And of San Francisco. And mentioned daughter of California millionaire in a canon. Glenn's done pretty well for himself, and uh, I could see how this fits together. So – When did the pieces start fitting together for you, Emily? And when did you realize that, oh my God, I'm next?
4: Well, I heard the word California coming out of Mike's mouth, and I I just didn't think it could be it. And there was sort of a rushing feeling in my ears. So I think when I honestly knew was when you were poking me in the small of my back to go up, uh, to be quite honest about it. Uh, but and I, I was I
1: was actually bouncing in my seat and whispering to Francine Kits before <laughs> that.
4: It's Emily. It's Emily. <laughs> no, I think that was it. Uh, I think I heard his name from Mike a little bit more distinctly than my own. Mm-hmm. I was very focused on simply not tripping going up. Uh, I didn't want to give him any time to reconsider, so I had to get up <laughs> there right away. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's a, that's a fair fair assessment, and. Glenn, did you have any idea that this was coming?
5: I hadn't a clue. Honestly, I hadn't a clue. Of course, I've been, you know, eager and and pleased and hoping that uh, Emily would be invited to officially join our ranks. She certainly is an accomplished Sherlockian without an investiture, but deserving of, I thought deserving of one. So I was, didn't know, but uh, as thrilled, more thrilled than when I got my own.
1: That's saying something, you know. And as a as a father of three young children, looking at them in their cribs and their beds and their, uh, you know, reading chairs, hoping that they will pick up on this mania of ours, it doesn't always work out that way, does it?
5: No, it doesn't. Um, I would say certainly uh, uh, Emily has gone for it uh, in a, a profound way. My uh, uh, other daughter Molly is. Very fond of Sherlock, but I would not say she is as um, obsessed
4: <laughs> with
5: the character, the era, or the stories.
4: So where does
1: the obsession come from?
4: Well, for me, it came prenatally. <laughs> um. <laughs> it was a, it was
1: an infusion, you know, it was, a, uh, it was genetic and blood and all that.
4: Yeah. It certainly was, but uh, so. It did literally infuse the house in which I grew up. Uh, it very literally, it, it decks the walls and the bookshelves and the T-shirts and the ornaments on the Christmas tree and the quotes on the Christmas cards and the coasters on the table. And the
1: strange people that come to visit. And all the people <laughs> who come to
4: visit or all the times that Dad disappears, most notably every January when I have to go back to school from Christmas break. But, um, you know, we all read the stories as children and they're really great stories uh it's the best friendship on paper i've ever seen in my entire life so you know how could anybody not become addicted and obsessed to with it is is really more what baffles me and then i mean if if there was ever a last nail in the proverbial mysterious coffin there i think it was as soon as i began meeting other sherlockians uh you know a variety of people who are so unique and so amazing and so incredibly strange and funny united by just this one thing and then there's no other sort of similarity that you can pinpoint Uh, you know that's fantastic you know i've got friends who are reporters in far off places and collectors and housewives and professors and doctors and what have you um why would why would you not become obsessed with that
1: yeah well, you know, uh, I, I recall when I first got involved with Sherlock Holmes, uh, it was when I was in high school. I was 15. Oh,
4: yeah.
1: I wasn't even old enough to drive to my first meeting. And my first meeting, many of my first meetings after that mm-hmm. were at Gillette Castle.
5: Oh, it doesn't terrific. really
1: Good get saying. much better than that, mm-hmm. right? No. But I remember, at that very first meeting, being feeling so welcomed by all these people were interested in someone who was interested in the same things that they were. And it was everyone from presidents to plumbers and everything in between. You didn't necessarily have to sit down and talk about Sherlock Holmes every meeting, but it was about meeting interesting people. And to me, it was my first social network. Yeah. Right? And we all had this common bond that drove us together. And what I love that's happening here is that you've got this filial bond as well. And you don't see that too often in the Sherlockian world. You don't see spouses all that often that have the same interest. You don't see children that hold the same interest as their parents. So for an observer, to me, it's very gratifying to see this happening.
5: Well, Emily really came by it naturally, so to speak. I mean, yes, it was all over the house, but it's not like I was on any campaign to (laughs) inculcate the uh, stories or the characters into anybody else in the family.
1: You would have been okay if she hadn't been a Sherlock in?
5: Well,
2: <laughs>
1: he would have
5: learned to live with it. I, 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 I would have lived with it, but you know, out of the will,
1: for sure. <laughs> yeah. you know, out of the will, for sure. Well, Emily, you can still reconsider, and there might be room for... Uh, no. No, okay, all right, I tried.
4: <laughs> no, I'm happy with it, but I think that's, that's one of the nice things, is I, I you know, have observed that... Not as many people as I would wish are friends with their parents. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. actual friends have a similarity of interest and there's a sympathy of spirit, in addition to the sort of traditional family bonds that the accident of birth imposes on you. And the fact that I lucked into sharing this with my dad, and it's it's just great. And I mean, happy accidents, uh, you know. Uh, a thing that happened based on the, you know, nature-nurture setting, I don't know. But I really like that. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is giving many friends, the first of whom and the best of whom is my dad.
5: So, yeah, so Sherlock has just been, you know, reasonably ubiquitous in the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we have some, even have some family traditions based on Sherlock. Like Like what? Well, every Boxing Day I read the Blue Carbuncle aloud to the family. Now, I think we Still? may, we may, yeah. Yes. No, yeah. It did it, we may have missed you know one or two or three over the That's years? That's amazing. So, what, so how, for what's example, the setting like? Tell, tell me. About well, it, dep- it. actually yeah. the last one was the most interesting okay. because Emily wasn't home. Okay. Skype. So, so well, excuse me. We're <laughs> oh, we're, we're, Apple Skype. we're Apple people. Sorry, Facetime. So we we've, <laughs> Emily Facetimed in, and I, and I read it to Emily and Molly and That's Kathy. That's wonderful. And I also Gee,
0: you still use an apple computer? apropos of nothing
5: <laughs> it works I, I left a, I left the dark side a long time ago uh, I read from a copy uh, you know Kathy's interested in the book <laughs> arts I read from a copy of the story that where Kathy had set the type and printed the book the, the story oh wow. it's a, it's a, you know it's
1: it's the yeah. one
5: story in a you know smallish yeah. book yeah. and that's, that's the book that's I read from very
1: special
4: yeah, yeah. No, and, well, and that's
1: that's a tradition that potentially you can carry on to your kids someday, should you?
4: Yeah, we'll see. Well, I, I would hope that it would actually be him reading well, to them, Yeah. Uh, you know, little little Sherlock and little Mycroft. But, um,
1: <laughs> oh, we've already planned it out. I love it. I love it.
4: Well, maybe not that yeah. far, but it was great, and it was actually nice because this was the first uh, holiday season that I spent away from my parents, not away mm. from home necessarily, but away from them and uh, having the happy technology to make sure that we didn't miss the annual reading. Uh, was fantastic that's
5: that's really special yeah so like i say this past this past boxing day was more interesting than most (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) well um let me be one of the first to say well probably the first to say because this is a really horrible pun brace yourself i can i can see your, your your yes there you go your feet are steady the apple doesn't far, fall too far from the origin of tree worship. <laughs>
5: oh, oh. oh, no. I got apple in oh, there, no. too. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, what, like You're a triple on talent. Really,
1: really bad. Really bad on every level. Congratulations to both. Of you. Thank you, Scott. I forgot that was like a mini Oprah episode. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's not often you get to see the, the dual generation of Sherlockians like that. Usually, um, <laughs> this this mania is contained to one generation. And try as we might, parents uh, have a difficult time getting their kids into it. And uh, I was at Glenn's house not too long ago, and he's got one of the most amazing collections you will ever see. And some of his uh, manuscripts, mm. yes, it's plural, and his his original Sidney Paget artwork. We're not there because they are actually on loan to the Sherlock Holmes exhibition at the museum of London. Mm. But I asked Glenn and in, in spending time in his library, what is your favorite piece in this entire collection written or art? And he walked over to the wall and pointed to this little, uh, crayon drawing, uh, that was by Emily, and it was a drawing of Sherlock Holmes, and it said "to Daddy." And I think it was "Daddy" spelled with only one "D" in the middle, uh, so you could tell she was fairly young when she did it. But he he treasures that, and he's got it framed right next to some of his pageants. So, uh, just some of the great stories you pick up in the in the uh, in the city during the BSI weekend. Well, that can mean only one thing. I've forgotten what it is. (laughs) Oh, yes. The editor's gas lamp. Oh, of course. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, this time, we're actually digging into the Watsonian, branching out a little bit. Uh, So not a gas lamp per se, but a stand-in. And in this case, um, we've got a gentleman who... We saw quite a bit over the BSI weekend. I know we'll be talking to him and a couple of his colleagues in uh, a couple of episodes, Uh, and that is uh, Bob Katz. Hmm. Robert Katz, uh, of course, for many years at the BSI dinner, did the toast to uh, the second Mrs. Watson. So as you can imagine, Bob has all kinds of interests in things Watsonian, Well, in this case, um, Bob talks about Watson's wound, real or phantom. One of the great controversies in the Watsonian literature has revolved around the location of John Watson's war wound. In a study in Scarlet, we learn that Watson was shot by a Giselle bullet in the shoulder, with the bullet shattering the bone, most likely the clavicle, and grazing the subcutaneous artery. Later, in the sign of four, Watson tells us he had a Giselle bullet through his leg. This apparent contradiction has led to an enormous literature on what has been termed Watson's wandering wound. Some of the solutions for resolving this contradiction have been humorous, others the product of careful medical reasoning. However, many are somewhat derogatory to Watson's personality, or to his honesty, or even his physical attributes. It's often stated or implied that Watson was injured in such a manner as to make him forgetful of the wound's location. Another suggestion can be made about the true nature of Watson's injury. It is one that, far from inspiring ridicule of Watson, actually increases our respect for Watson's character. The region of the subclavian artery is one of the most anatomically complex in the human body. An extraordinary series of large blood vessels and critical nerves are all within a few centimeters of each other. A wound that shattered the clavicle and came so near the subclavian artery could hardly fail to come equally near the brachial plexus, that large nerve that controls movement and sensation to the upper extremity. The result of such a wound would depend on the extent of the trauma. A complete break in the continuity of the nerve would leave an arm nearly useless on a permanent basis. However, even a grazing could cause a swelling in the region with some temporary dysfunction. An intermediate level of injury, damaging but not severing the nerve, might cause significant long-term disability. This author has suggested previously that Watson's MyWand injury led to a major limitation in his professional career. Beyond the impairment of movement and function produced by the wound, another important issue needs consideration. Brachial plexus nerve injuries can result in a syndrome of prolonged and agonizing pain known commonly as causalgia. The pain can be burning, intense, and paroxysmal. It's possible that a ligature was placed around the nerve during the repair of the injury to Admiral Horatio Nelson's arm, resulting in his being in pain for the remainder of his life. Long after his return from Afghanistan, Watson might have been in pain from the after-effects of his injury. Any, Any bone or bullet chips remaining in the wound site would have exacerbated the situation. Well, how then does this resolve the controversy over Watson's seemingly multiple wounds? It should be recalled that although Watson was a physician, he would also react to injury in the same manner as any other patient. Periodic and profound episodes of pain may have been disabling and even debilitating to Watson. Perhaps he dealt with this like so many others faced with the same problem. He just tried to ignore the source of his misery. He could not even bear to think about the location of his wound, since in many cases of causalgia, even the, more, the mere psychological stimulus of thinking about the wound will cause that paroxysm of pain. He resorted to the use of euphemism in order to describe his wound. Rather than thinking about his injured shoulder, he called it his leg Any means of avoiding mention of the site of his discomfort might spare him another attack. The leg injury was a phantom, a useful distraction that might have warded off attacks of pain from the real site of injury. Yet this also shows us another side of Watson's character. In spite of a lifetime of debilitating pain and disability, Watson managed to keep functioning. He practiced medicine married, and most important of all, served as the Boswell to Holmes. Even if it was painful to do so, Watson sat at his desk and penned the memoirs of his adventures with Holmes. Regardless of the challenges he faced, Watson faced his challenges and enriched our lives. (laughs)
0: What a very nice article, and bravely read. Uh, paroxysm, clavicle, brachios, uh, what's it? Wow.
1: <laughs> well, it helps having a bit of a medical background, although it was many years ago. Mm. So, Of course, Bob uh, is a retired pathologist. Yes, so, he is. Uh, really, really well done on his part in terms of... Uh, deciphering what the cause of that misstatement might actually be. Mm. So, well, uh, just a couple of notes here as we wrap up. Uh, don't forget that uh, I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is available across any number of platforms that you wish, um, either audio or social uh, you can find us as I Hear of Sherlock on Facebook, on Twitter, on Tumblr. Uh, you can catch up with us on iTunes at bit.ly slash I Hear of Sherlock, all lowercase there bit.ly slash I Hear of Sherlock. That's the place where we need your help. That's the place where if you log into iTunes, please consider leaving us a review. Rate the show, leave a review, tell other people what you think of this zany little get-together on a regular basis. Hmm.
0: And call us. You can contact us at 774-221-READ, 774-221-7323. And we leave and play your comment on the show. That is lovely. And, of
1: course, email still works. Uh, Comment at ihearsherlock.com. Will certainly reach us. And if you want to keep up on uh, the news in between our monthly shows, which are produced and uh, edited uh, by my colleague over there and uh, go up every the 15th of every month, you can check us out on sites like Scoop It and Flipboard. Very excited about Flipboard because just this week, Flipboard announced that they have enhanced their website. Uh, so you can scroll through the news there rather than flip through, uh, the flipping is, uh, I guess, a, a, an artifact of the, uh, the tablet and the phone versions, but on the web, uh, you can go to bit.ly slash flip Sherlock, a capital F capital S. Uh, and we'll have a link into the show notes there, but that's where you can find all of the latest news that we, uh, curate, uh, for you Have you check out there. And one of the most recent bits of news here is that the film Mr. Holmes was screened at the Berlin Film Festival. This, of course, is the screen adaptation of Mitch Cullen's A Slight Trick of the Mind, starring none other than Ian McKellen as Sherlock Holmes, a 93-year-old Sherlock Holmes uh, in 1947 on the Sussex Downs. And uh, his, his reminiscences and his interactions with a young uh, boy with autism. Uh, So certainly worth checking that out. It also looks like uh, the Sherlock special, which is uh, thought to be scheduled for this Christmas, uh, has finished filming in uh, Bath and Bristol. And uh, it looks like that our characters have a Victorian setting for Mm. once with Benedict Cumberbatch and... Martin Freeman,
0: and the like. Very good. A lot to look forward to. Indeed.
1: And if you have an opportunity to be in London at the end of April, check out Sherlock, the official Sherlock convention uh, being uh, sponsored by our friends at Sherlockology. Uh, and they've already announced some of their early guests, which include none other than Mark Gatiss, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Sue Vertu, uh who else Stephen Moffat. so and they're going to have other uh, announcements uh, about other guests as the weeks roll on but tickets are already for sale i believe the um, least expensive ticket is 29 pounds uh, it goes all the way up to uh, a couple of thousand pounds i think for a vip or platinum level um, ticket which that's the ticket you need if you want Benedict Cumberbatch's autograph. He will not be made available to the screaming masses. Uh, but if you want to buy one of those VIP or platinum level tickets, you can guarantee yourself an audience with the Benny. <clears throat> the Benny, oh. So lots of cool stuff there. So check us out over on Flipboard. And of course, uh, consider an email subscription for free to uh, what we've got on, on here uh, and subscribe with the audio. Uh, a feed of your choice. We're, of course, on iTunes, but we also have a presence on Stitcher and SoundCloud. So whatever works for you, take a listen.
0: Mm. Excellent.
1: Well, I suppose that leaves us, we're at the juncture of uh, the point
0: where we always like to say I'm Scott Monty. Yes, you are Scott Monty, and I'm grateful. I'm a grateful, Burt Wolder, that you're Scott oh, Monty.
1: I, You know, I, I didn't think you looked like a Grateful. You, I, I, you certainly don't look like a Dead, which is no. encouraging. But yeah, yes. You do look like a Burt to me, so that's encouraging. No, we're not an Ernie. That's, that's, that's good. <laughs> Yee, hey, interesting bit of trivia as we're coming out of the holidays here. Um, Burt and Ernie, which many folks know from Sesame Street, Got their names from, do you know?
0: Oh, I did. Um, <laughs> I did
1: know that, but I've forgotten. From the cop and the taxi driver in It's a Wonderful Life. Right, right. Bert and Ernie. <laughs> well, we are Bert and Ernie, reminding you that the, the game's
0: afoot. Afoot, No, I am afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation I am neglecting business of importance which awaits me elsewhere.
1: thank you for listening please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes
0: goodbye and good luck and believe me to be my dear fellow Very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.